Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devi Kagirish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I am reporting from the sunny, or maybe not so sunny, shores of Cannes. The 2023 Cannes Festival is currently underway, and as news of spit takes and hot takes, raves and pans, walkouts and standing ovations flood your feed, the Film Comment crew will keep you up to date on all the cinematic goings on at the Crosset with dispatches, interviews, podcasts and more. So make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter and follow along. All right folks, it is Friday evening. of the second week the final week of can i personally have finished my last movie i mean i, w- I might watch a couple more links but my last movie in a can movie theater is done it's a strange feeling after 2 weeks of doing this nonstop uh 2 weeks that feel like 5 years and to talk about the last little haul of films which had some pretty exciting titles i would say i have with me three wonderful guests frederick introduce yourself Hi, I'm uh, Frederick Jäger, German film critic and programmer, and um, I think that's enough. I'm also <laughs> a filmmaker, but you'll get to see that later on. Oh, maybe at Cannes. <laughs> we'll see. And then uh, we have a podcast newcomer, Caitlin. Hi, I'm Caitlin Doherty. I'm a writer and editor at New Left Review. Um, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Great to have you. <laughs> and we have doing production, spinning the wheels. Yeah, the production of Fashionado for uh, Khan this year, James Wham. Um, I also contribute to New Life Review, which is how I met Caitlin. Uh, film comment, The Baffler, uh, and occasionally other places. Yeah, and uh, James has all the controls in his hand, so if he hears us saying something he doesn't agree with, you might he might just cut us off. He <laughs> suddenly become very quiet. Yeah, especially sudden- about Potiphar. <laughs> suddenly he's like, "There's too much wind, Devika. We can't hear your thoughts about the food porn movie. We will get to the food porn movie eventually. I refuse to start with that one, but I would like to start with. I think the title that most people have been really excited about like for me it was the most awaited movie of the festival and it somehow fell on the last day so it's been such a long wait and that's Alice Rohrwacher's La Quimera. Uh it's her you know the last film she made was Happy as Lazaro or Lazaro Felice in 20, which came out in I think 2017 in the US I don't know when it premiered at Cannes 2017 or 2018 maybe um so it has been a bit of a wait And um Frederick do you want to tell us what it's like sort of lay the groundwork tell us what it's about <laughs> you know easy job Uh yeah well um for those of you who know Ali Chirovacha um it's a movie that's not only um in one time it's a it's a very um enigmatic movie again it's a movie um about a Englishman who's um in Italy and um coming back out of prison and he's uh he's played by Josh O'Connor Char- King Charles fans <laughs> <laughs> and um he's back with his gang who he didn't maybe really want to um get in with again and they're um they're mostly looking for treasures in um uh, tombstones and um in some kind of uh, um yeah hidden hidden tombs so yeah they're grave robbers as yeah yeah 
Um, and and then there's uh, there's the story about his lost lo uh, long lost love, and there's a new woman, um, and from there it goes into um, different spheres. It's uh, it's again a very um, yeah poetic movie. It's uh, it's one that's not so easy to grasp, especially as you said after two weeks of nonstop film watching. So I'll have to admit that um, I'll give it a second shot um, later on, and I'll be happy to do so. Um, I'm not the biggest Alicia Rovaha fan in the sense that I know so many people who can't stop raving about her. I really love her work, but I'm not. It's not the one movie I was waiting for. Okay. Um, but I did enjoy it. Um, but at the same time, it did lose me also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel a little bit similarly in the sense of like, I think I really need a second watch to put the pieces together. I think Happy as Lazaro is so well, uh, not well, so quite neatly structured. It's still poetic and magical and goes in and out of time and all of that. But there's a very neat bifurcated structure. So the conceit is not ambiguous. You know, there's a past and then there's a future and there's a real life historical event that sort of separates the two. And this is much more elusive. This is much more um, constantly shifting registers. And I, yeah, I'm still, I haven't put all the pieces together in my head yet. But on the one hand, I think it is like, it continues a lot of the preoccupations of her previous films, especially uh, Lazaro Felice, in the sense that it takes on folklore, myths, and working class culture. So Josh O'Connor, the protagonist, is part of a band of Tombarolis. I mean, I'm probably saying it wrong, but that's that's how it's described in the in the press kit, and the word for grave robbers. But from my understanding, grave robbing has a kind of uh, more sort of folkloric aspect in Italy. So they, um, you know, they their position is very much like anti-capitalist. There's like grave robbing songs in the film where it's about like, you know, we will not work to earn. It's like an anti-work politics. We will not work to earn. We will rob the dead who don't need money and we will get rich quick. But at the same time, there is this aspect of collapsing the sacred and the profane and not respecting the boundaries of, you know, um, the boundaries that people tend to like, you know, uh, even secular people live tend to live bound by, like not going into a tomb, not like exhuming a body. So there's a lot that is that feels like very cultural and mythical within that that she's playing with. At the same time, very contemporary, very much about class in in really gritty and specific ways. Like, what does it mean to have to work to live? What does it mean that objects can get like inflated value in the market like an art market as opposed to the value they hold as sacred objects as opposed to the value they crudely hold as means to live by so she's exploring all of these themes but there is also this really heavy romanticism that comes from the uh, lead character his name is Arthur his lost love who is the chimera he's after and I think the idea is that he has some kind of supernatural gift for grave robbing where he gets these visions or this bodily possession when he senses that there's a treasure and that he's always seeking these chimeras, which are these treasures, but 
in some way that is also the woman he has lost and i think that's where i think i need to rewatch because i wasn't really sure where that woman fit in but her mother is played by isabella rossellini who's who treats him like a son and she has this student that she treats like a servant who becomes like another love interest so there's just a lot of these stories and characters um crisscrossing and it's shot beautifully i believe on 16 in a kind of boxy aspect ratio and it just keeps there's bits where it goes into fast uh what do you call it like fast um like the pace fast motion. fast motion yeah it's like sped up to look like a silent film or like a slapstick comedy there's these musical sequences there's like fellini esque sort of old italian neorealist sequences as well and um and there's these magical mythical sequences and also there's a little bit of like what's different i think from lazaro felice is that is the story of a community a village in this we are really at times inside arthur's head and it is a little bit more solipsistic in the sense that i think we're looking at the world from his eyes and his reality is constantly shifting um so it's just I don't know I I don't feel like I've given a very lucid description because I'm trying to grasp at all the threads that this film has but it's so mesmerizing it's so deeply melancholic it's the same thing I had when I watched her previ- previous films I just really feel the gut punch of the present you know like really how sorry it is that we all live in this present you know you feel that but then you also feel this beauty and the sense of transcendent life the sense of living beyond our mortal existence um so yeah i i felt completely caught up in it yeah yeah no i mean it's um it's an incredibly rich film which i think is why everyone's saying they want a second go at it but um just a lot of the way the film's structured with the way the protagonist sort of comes out of time and a lot of rawaka's most interesting formal elements come when he has these moments of divination and is trying to find these artifacts and he is torn between defiling those artifacts profiting from them living like this nomadic lifestyle uh and then you sort of alluded to this but the art world or the museum world does come into play towards the very end um in sort of like a typically grotesque fashion which reframes With what they're doing with albar rawaka doing like a tilda doing tilda cosplay tilda swinton cosplay <laughs> yeah. um but yeah i mean it's it's a beautiful film uh i i don't think it's her strongest but it was definitely one of the most enjoyable just to sit in a theater and and have that wash over you and i think the aspect ratio does come and go it it, it changes and okay, and yeah. different stylizations flit in and out so you're constantly getting new information uh just new visual cues and you're sort of slowly trying to piece everything together with this sort of strange cipher of a protagonist and and what he's actually searching for um or if he's just completely lost in time. I think uh the lead character is really interesting because he's um interesting to look at and at the same time he's um he's he's very mysterious in a in a way that um he doesn't completely get me interested in uh what's what's going on in in him because he has this he has this great um great long lost love but um 
What exactly motivates him for what is quite unclear. He He's wandering through the streets and usually not in a very dynamic way un, unless the fast motion kicks in. Um, and there's, yeah, there's really something about him that is more of a simple presence, which is a bodily presence, than, than anything of a rich world, I would say. It was the same in Lazaro Felice, though, you know, the kind of, I mean, he's very different from, the, from Lazaro, but this kind of cipher-like, naive, in that case, cherubic character who doesn't have that much interiority. And in that case, it's because he's almost like trapped in time. I was trying to kind of compare them in my head while watching this because I felt a little bit of what you did. Mm. I think for me, I did not know Josh O'Connor was in this movie. And I was just so t taken aback by like a British movie star being in this movie, you know, because mm. I've seen I hadn't him. I've seen him before. Well, I've mm. seen him like The Crown and I've seen him in a few other things, but I not in like proper European art house cinema. So I, it took me a second because her, again, like the rest of the milieu, I mean, even Isabella Rossellini doesn't even look like herself. The rest of the milieu feels very realistic to me. And then, but he is also an Englishman in Italy. I mean, everyone's always calling him the Englishman in the film. So he's supposed to be conspicuously odd. Mm. But there is like some strange naivete at, uh, to him. Yeah, and also, you know, he's he's just a beautiful man with not many problems. I mean, in Lazzaro Felice, we, we really had a protagonist who was struggling. And I don't think that Arthur is struggling. I, I mean, not struggling with anything else than himself in the way that he has a... He has this great melancholy in him. And I, in a way, this is also almost a male idea of this man who's, you know, uh, wandering through the streets with melancholy in his, he in his, in his heart and um, everything falls into place for him. Um, <laughs> um, everything falls into place for him in a way that everyone is so focused on him everyone um, everyone is interested in what he does and wh where he goes and um, and he has these magical powers so it's a kind of uh, wish fulfillment um, uh, yeah. perspective on this man that's not so interesting to me but it, it did remind me of like Mastroani or something like that the way he can just go wherever he pleases because he's handsome and you know he can blend me loose when needed uh, and he just takes you through this sort of strange intrepid journey always in a suit yeah exactly so that I think that's a good reference the other thing is I do think the film is aware of that I mean because there is that moment I, I don't want to spoil it but there's a moment where he someone says to him you can pretend to be a crook but you're not, like with your dirty shoes. And so there is a sense that he's an interloper in more ways than one. Mm -hmm. And the people he hangs out with really need this money. They need to steal these, this stuff. They're proper criminals. And he is pretending in some way. And we don't get the full extent, like his full backstory. But he's clearly has some kind of facades. And that has to do with his foreignness and his beauty, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are some, also some like explicit Fellini references. I do think they're like very deliberately trying to position him in that in that vein. A little bit of a stretch, I think, as much as I love Josh no, O'Connor. Oh no, 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 not. I think you're right. I'm saying position him as like a Mastrani kind of. You He's know. very charming, very good looking. <laughs> I didn't. I had not seen anything that he'd been in prior to this, and people were gushing about him after the He's film. He's a very good actor, I think. Yeah. I think he's a truly like solid. Um, 
good, charming performer. Yeah, he's no Mastroianni, though. Yeah. I don't think. Um, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> even though I would say that uh, I was actually more thinking of um, of films of Fellini, like um, The Knights of Cabiria. Yeah, I am actually not thinking so much of Mastroianni in um, in relationship to to this Fellini-esque um, uh, perspective that I did see in this movie. Yeah. Mm. Um, I want to actually segue to the film that I saw immediately after with barely a 30-minute break, which actually, in many ways, is a companion piece, I think. Um, completely different modes of filmmaking, but a similar kind of really overriding class hmm. concern, I think. And that is Ken Loach's The Old Oak, and I will let the Brit at the table, introduce this film. <laughs> the, the, the express purpose for your place is Thank to you. talk about the yeah, Ken wow. <laughs> The British correspondent over here. Sure. Well, um, I mean, is it helpful for me to provide a kind of summary of... Yeah, the, just yeah. what the film is about. Yeah, yeah so I guess um, one way to introduce it is to say it kind of forms like the final uh, inst installation in a kind of triptych um, that uh, Loach has, has kind of completed with Paul Laverty as kind of long-time uh, screenwriter, um, which also includes uh, Sorry We Missed You and I, Daniel Blake. Um, so this is kind of rounding off some of that. And it, um, it's about, uh, the film opens actually with an intertitle that just says The North of England, 2016. I think we could be a little bit more specific than that because it is quite important. Um, it's it's set in a fictionalised Durham, uh, County Durham, uh, like, former uh, pit village okay um it's it's very localized and that's you know that's also kind of the region in which uh, i daniel blake is set okay. um so a, a kind of recurring theme and a, and a real kind of like i and guess you're from the north of england i am from the north yeah. of england oh yeah my mum's mm -hmm. from durham but i'm from manchester okay. um, so, um so yeah hence being able to place those accents yeah. but um uh yeah and I, I suppose that's kind of like part of part of the kind of setting of the film is this you know the sense of kind of like what it is to live in a, a place that has been condemned to kind of 30 years of kind of industrial decline or, or more than that now and the the shadow of the kind of miners strike of 1984 hangs over it and it's about the arrival the resettlement of a group of Syrian refugees um, in 2016 uh, in that village and the uh, to my mind at least incredibly obvious tensions uh, and you know incredibly kind of trite uh, ways into kind of like those characters and those kind of like um, social classes and milieus that, that Loach wants to bring out. I think um, I'll, I'll go in kind of with my heaviest critique first. I think calling it a film is maybe like an overreach. Uh, <laughs> I think it's, you know, like he, oh, okay. he's made something here that basically feels like kind of teaching materials for A-level sociology. Like you could kind of pause it every 20 minutes and have like a, a, a discussion a about module, kind of, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. kind of liberal ethics. Or, you know, it's for like Guardian readers kind of coming out of, you know, their local picture house and having a nice glass of Sauvignon talking about what's gone wrong post-Brexit. It's like, it's really, it's really right he, he gave this interview like about you know retiring um which is good i think for him <laughs> he's 90 you know he deserves to and he Jesus said sorry Christ, no 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 yeah but he said you know he said i'll be nearly 90 yeah. years old as long as he gets his pension you know he's earned uh, it yeah i think he'll be fine uh <laughs> he said i'll be nearly 90 years old and your facilities do decline yeah and you know good on him he, he you know when you compare this this kind of film to to his earlier works, you know, the things like Kathy Come Home and Up the Junction, it's really, it's incredibly lacking uh, in terms of like any kind of 
like interest in psychology and mm. any complexity. And I think one of the reasons for that, it might actually be kind of attributable to Laverty because if you think about kind of Loach's like mm. real kind of like, you know, uh, masterpieces, they're all based on kind of like exceptional novels of the British post-war mm. period. So he worked so well with like Jeremy Sanford, with Nell Dunn, uh, with Barry Hines from Kez. So he's really not capable, I don't think, of narrative. I don't think he's capable of nuance in his characters. And I don't know, you know, where to attribute that, but clearly something's gone wrong in that in that creative process um and I, in and yeah compared to kind of even i daniel blake which i wasn't a huge mm. fan of i have to be honest this like this is really inc it's incredibly flat at the mm. level of like tension and narrative i, thought. I think that's what i like about it i think um <laughs> no it's, it's i think this this idea of um knowing what a film has to be like um mm. is really um foreign to me and i was thinking while watching it um there's really very little conflict and mm. i, I thought thought that's so interesting to construct this film in this way where all the cards are on the table and we see everything in the first in the first scene in mm. the first scene everything is explained the Syrian refugees um, come in a bus and um, the people from the village um, in all their um, despair are very um, um, yeah very hostile towards them and some want to help mm. and this is actually the film that's mm. uh, that's about it some people want to help and the Syrian refugees um, uh, will will um, will want to help also mm. the people in the village. And um, it's really interesting because there's there's not much drama in it. Mm. I mean, there is a little bit, of course, but um, I think this this being really with these people in this um, in this kind of um, uh, realist utopia is is something very moving. I yeah. I almost cried, and I know that's not an argument for a good film. Um, I cried, and therefore <laughs> it is good. <laughs> which which point made you almost cry? Well, Just of course, it's the moment where where all the people gather. Um, uh, oh yeah spontaneously um, they just arrive outside and, the house and of it's flowers, yeah. it's, yeah, there's a scene I mean it's towards the end so I don't want to spoil but there's yeah. a very emotional moment where a lot of people of the town um, gather and it's completely over the top it's absolutely not realistic and um and I think it's um, very heartfelt, and I think that's that's the fun of this um, end of career Loach that he's not trying to go into realism, he's not going into psychological realism because who cares why people are racist? I mean, they are, and um, well, we I think in that context, we and, maybe do care, though, right? Well, I actually no? don't. I, don't I mean, need he, to, he doesn't I give mean, any shit. I don't to... need to understand why people um, become racist. I, I mean, this mm. is this is quite common sense. And I think that in this very laid back, um, I don't need to prove myself anymore. He did something. Uh, did a very, a very um, beautiful and simple, um, heartfelt movie. I just want to pick up on Caitlin's saying. As someone who's lived in uh, London for two years, uh, James, what yeah, do you think? Yeah, just want to give it. Tell us about County Durham, <laughs> <laughs> a year and two months. Yeah. No, I, I just wanted to say that you, you talked about the fact that you yeah. get to the end of your career and knowing when to hang it up. And yeah. um, there's a lot of directors in this year's competition and festival who are returning for the first time in a very long time and have made some excellent films. Um, and also the guest of honor at this year's Kinzan, I believe, was Quentin Tarantino, mm -hmm. who's been very vocal about the fact that he's cognizant that directors have their time in the sun and then they, they don't know when to hang it up. And he's explicitly saying after his next film, I'm done because I've done all the good filmmaking I can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I also liked this film very much and I will contextualize it with a few things. Like, 
I don't like his last two films at all. I think uh, they did not work for me at all. And actually, I think what Frederick said is quite persuasive and is making me even rethink how I thought of those. But, you know, my pet peeve is the film in which bad things happen to character and we feel sorry and world is bad, you know? And the Dardens made a film like that last year. They've been making some films like that too. Last year they made a film called Tori and Lokita, which I just, uh, you know, was the epitome of that genre for me, which was about these African immigrants in France and they're, you know, just a series of unimaginable misfortunes befall them and then it ends actually in a very sad place. But, to me, this idea that we need to watch immigrants, people of color, poor people, first of all, that they must be unimpeachable and then go through the greatest trials one could imagine as a way of feeling empathy for them feels not unrelated to the liberal idea of like, people who deserve our empathy must be morally perfect and have suffered a lot. And you know, and that. And I went into the old oak expecting something similar. I mean, I think, to, sorry we missed you, even though it is, I think, a very angry screed against Amazon and this, you know, the delivery system and, like, the larger implications of instant gratification capitalism. It does have that thing of, like, burdening an individual character with, like, the world's problems in a way that almost abstracts the system from it. And this film, I think really moved me for a few reasons. One of them being it was the last film I saw at the end of two weeks and I felt really dissatisfied by the uh, dissatisfied by like the political filmmaking at Cannes if you can even call it that. Like the political engagement in filmmaking here is always so um, it's always so precious and affected and it's always you know I think very um, there's a lot of Faith in form, which form is important, but sometimes that obfuscates like the simple facts, you know. And so first of all, like the directness of Loach's political commitment, but also like yearning just hit me in this film where I was just like, the man desperately wants to live in a better world. He wants to see a better world, to die in a better world. I mean, he's 90. He wants us to do better. And he's just... Like Frederick was saying, he doesn't really give a shit. He just wants to tell you, hey, I want to live in a better world. Can we all be nice? So that was like, that somehow just got me. And then I do think that, I think it's, it's very broad and very corny. Like Caitlin, I will not quibble with, with your critiques. But also to me, you know, seeing so many films about immigrants by European filmmakers here, to have a film about immigrants where they're not, where both their tragedy, their tragedy is represented, but they're not completely flattened into vessels of pity. I mean, I found the Syrian woman character to be really interesting and watchable. These are, it's very didactic, but these are also the issues we're all grappling with. I mean, this is made to be such a culture wars thing in the U.S., the white working class versus the, you know, people of color and immigrants. And the film presents a very simple but, like, to me, believable vision of a place where these people feel like they're in conflict with one, other, one another. But it doesn't take too much to realize that they have more in common than they have separating them. 
And I know that, I know, James is laughing at me. And I know that sounds just like a liberal, like, cornmeal. I mean, what they have in common is also so kind of, like, thinly realized that it just felt like it was kind of produced by ChatGPT. Like, they're in Durham <laughs> Cathedral, and, like, and then she's saying, like, God, this really reminds me of Palmyra. And you're like, mm. what, you know, I, I, what they just, have in like, common is they're poor. I don't think that is true. I don't. Like, what I they mean, have well, in common they, is yeah. they need food and yeah, clothes sure, and heat. Yeah, sure, sure. No, there's like no, but I mean, but that's one of the things that I thought the, the film, in its simplicity, really kind of was almost at pains to avoid, which was like, you know, the, the, I was actually quite quite interested in the first kind of 10 minutes there was yeah. a discussion around kind of like housing and how basically like the inhabitants of this village were getting screwed over through the kind of cheap auctioning off of these these like um like like former miners yeah, houses yeah, yeah. um and then obviously kind of you know you're left to piece together kind of unusually for Lochi doesn't spell this out mm. that like um that basically the, the Syrian refugees have been moved there because of the cheapness of life right. in this place. So that that I agree yeah. that was well done but I just wanted to come back to kind of this idea about you know like he, he you know this film being kind of somewhat unique possibly in kind of like British filmmaking about being able to kind of like sketch out this this tension in kind of like white working class communities you know around kind of immigration particularly kind of uh, like um, you know from uh, you know places with kind of like Muslim uh, populations okay. and actually I think like for me one of the best films I've seen to, to treat this in the, in the last few years was Cleo Barnard's Ali and Ava which I know is mm-hmm. in the Kanzen a couple of years ago and I thought that was like I mean she's a, a formally inventive director her films are beautiful to look at like I, I thought the arbor was like Mm. absolutely stunning um and and that's a film that manages to kind of like really get i think to the heart of like you know of like people's actual lives in in these places whereas for me this just felt so by numbers in terms of sketching not just of like the kind of syrian refugees who i thought were actually quite flatly realized as well but also of of the community here you know there's this like really there's an equal opportunity flatness here there's Two characters of, on each side who are well realized, and the rest are simply mouthpieces. But, and so that I feel mm-hmm. comfortable. But well, are, you, I, are I, you doing I, social realism or parable? Like you right. Have, well, well, I don't think there's anything wrong sure, with doing parable. There's, it's for <laughs> sure not social realism. Yeah. Um, but I think we we all saw the same film. That's already good. Um, <laughs> it's just a question of how how we look at it, and I think that that there's not going into psychological realism, not going into uh, the conflicts that will motivate you and not going into formalist invention um, mm. actually um, opens up something. It's it's actually the possibility of connecting to this story in a way where you're like, oh, okay, I gotta think about something else. I'm not caught by the film. You know, mm. the, you're not you're not you're not the whole time with them because you're you're not given so much opportunity to to think. Oh, yeah, I, I actually believe it. But you're actually in the didactic moment is actually mm. working. And mm. I think. Um, I, I love cinema that's not didactic, but why not also have didactic cinema? Sure. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, like there's, there's, you know, there's conflict in Brecht, right? You know, like, like. Yeah. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Well, well, do you think it's a limit? Because Devika introduced this this film uh, in connection with the Rohrwacher, and I guess it's the the issue of contemporaneity. And mm. Rohrwacher says contemporaneity is confounding. Mm. 
And you're saying Loach is stepping back from intense, specific, localized social realism for something that has more emotional appeal. So is it, is it just the fact of... I don't even know if I, if I'm interpreting Frederick correctly. I don't know if it's emotional appeal, but it's mm. that it creates this kind of schematic space, you know, where it's not like you're suckered in emotionally, but that it gives you the outlines to for a certain kind of thought or position, yeah. but doesn't trap you within specific characters so that you're not thinking about the specific characters, but you're thinking more broadly about mm. certain possibilities. Because for me, you know, one very... <laughs> without spoiling it, one contrivance among many in the film is a change of heart that happens at the end. You know, at the big sort of collective scene, there is a person who has done some bad things previously who shows up, and I think it is supposed to be a change of heart. And there is something simple about it, but I did... I I think there is also something, like, very political in Loach's faith that that is possible and that that the ways in which we think about even ideological differences is more rigid than it need be. And that this is a small village, the things preoccupying people, filling them with either resentment or anger are ultimately fair, like, are ultimately very local and specific. And to me, I don't know, I just found it this very possible, this idea that in this community where everyone knows each other, everyone is friends, but everyone is sort of caught up in their lives, it is not that hard to look beyond yourself. Maybe that's like, I could say like, that's a fantasy that I fell for, but like, to me, the power of the film is that maybe isn't a fantasy. Mm. Can we agree on the fact that it was incredibly boring to look at, like at an aesthetic <laughs> level? I think like, it was, it was way it was better like, to look at than Sorry We Missed You. Do you think, I, is, I is thought I had more say. dynamism about it, and really? the kind of in the shots maybe. Okay. Just like there was this one shot of like the North Sea where I was like, I was so relieved to see it. And I thought if I'm like relieved to see the grayness of the North Sea, like, <laughs> like what's that telling you about the rest? It's you know? shot, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I thought, I, yeah, I mean, maybe it's kind of a segue into another film, but it, one of the things it does use is... Um, is kind of um, still photography, um, and and actually, you know, th there, there's a great tradition of kind of like photographing like the post-industrial north of England, and there's a photographer called Chris Killip who recently had a retrospective in London. Who's mm -hmm. like photographs are absolutely wonderful of that area. I strongly recommend if anyone's interested in in seeing more of that. Um, and you know, and and the the kind of the yeah again the kind of like the lack of kind of any any kind of like point of interest in those those images mm. for me it was also quite a striking contrast with the the Jelan film which I saw earlier this week and was like a, a real highlight oh, you know what I um, thought you were gonna say the Vim Vanders film Perfect Days oh, yeah, because everything you just said applies equally to yeah, that yeah. isn't that crazy yeah well the, I also hate the vendors we're gonna get onto that it's like yeah but, but you um, know we need the German take on it yeah it's kind of <laughs> yeah anyway but um, go ahead yeah well no I just thought you know this this the difference between a kind of like an auteur who's like clearly also a cinematographer who's like you know, I thought the way in which the the kind of, I mean, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but the kind of interweaving of like, like a deliberate kind of like uh, illumination of like Jalan's own craft is is front and center in that film, and and to pull that off without seeming arrogant, which I don't think that film does, it it, it works in service to the plot, it works in service to the characters, and the way he uses photography mm. in that film, I think actually kind of, uh, you know, like. It, 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 you know, it, like improves improves the film for me. Well, it's a it's a formally completely different um, kind of take on both um, how to construct um, uh, construct spaces and how to how to use photography, um, and it's. Uh, 
it's it's interesting because many movies we saw have this moment where they where they leave the realist uh, whether they leave, leave the realism and uh, there's a lot of what you've been missing in Loach in this film there's a lot of psychology a lot of um, talking through things and uh, at one moment the film leaves um, uh, leaves this um, how do you how do you call it um, the diegetic world yeah, yeah just yeah. the belief in um, Uh, this is happening because of that, and I think um, uh, that's that's maybe something they have in common. They have uh, Loach and um, Taylor have both the this knowledge of um, this does not happen because of that. We make it happen, mm -hmm. and um, I, I and it, uh, something something similar happened in Horvacher's film, and I mm. I think this kind of um, um, meta aspect of um, we know you know we're just doing this for you. Mm. Is is something that uh, brings these films together, and Jalan does it in a much more, um, um, let's say, um, uh, formalistic um, formalistic way. And um, uh, Loach does it by not going into the spaces we're expecting cinema to go to. Yeah, I will also say that the Jalan moment happens at a at a very Jalan <laughs> moment, like. You you start to see the the script sort of unfurling, and he's you can tell that he's like been building the film to this point to have these two characters sat together and and talking about what they're talking about, and he sort of unveils certain things about this protagonist who you haven't really been able to get your head around this whole time, and then the the timing of the exit of of sort of the puncture of the film happens at, at just the perfect moment, just on the on the emotional resonance of the film. Of, of the emotional arc of where these two characters have been coming, but also like right when the filmic qualities of it emerge and you're starting to maybe see through it, you just get this airlock pushed open. Yeah. I think that moment is very pleasurable and surprising. I did feel that it was an un, not a fully motivated flourish. It's like a gimmick. I did feel that it was gimmicky. Um, I'm, I like Jalon uh, <laughs> a lot. I think I don't like this film. I think that it is... Um, I just think that, uh, frankly, I don't think it's a very interesting film. Um, is it not complex enough for you? or? Well, I think it loses itself in the details almost. You know, there is um, there is sort of this this case involving the girl, you know, this teacher who yeah. is accused of abusing this Has girl. Has a lot of plot. Almost. And it just loses itself in the details at, to a point where... I don't know what this has to do with the larger world. And the case itself and these characters itself are not interesting enough for me to care. And I'm, I'm not really getting how they link to any larger things that I would care about. And, um, and I think that moment, again, very pleasurable, but has very little to do with what comes before or after. So it does feel to me like... And also the first two hours of the film I found very traditional, um, very traditional kind of classical novelistic filmmaking, uh, which I usually like in Jalan, but because I found the subject matter so uninteresting, it felt kind of trite. And so it really did feel like a gimmick to try to make a fairly traditional trite film seem more interesting and layered than I think it ultimately is. I was just, yeah, I was completely astounded by by the quote-unquote gimmick. I, you know, uh, I think also to put it in context, it was like, uh, it's my first time at Cannes, but it was what I'm now learning was a very kind of experience of like, 
about 30 critics rushing off a bus trying to get into the glazer and then being like snuck into the jailer. And so I was like sweaty. <laughs> I needed to go to the toilet. I needed yeah. water. And I sat through three and a half hours of this wow. film without moving because I was yeah so impressed by it. Um, and that, that moment that we're, we're kind of all alluding to, I think for me made sense in a way as a, as a kind of almost like um, a deconstruction of the, the position of that protagonist that he, like James is saying, is quite confounding, um, but occupies this kind of central role as opposed to these kind of two much stronger like women characters, one who's a, a, a girl and one who's a kind of a, a teacher. Um, and it's about kind of, I don't know, kind of trying to kind of like put him, it, you know, you get to this moment, this juncture in the film where he's about to kind of, uh, I don't know, get what he wants in some kind of way. And I thought it was a, a wonderful kind of like uh, coup de grace, you know, on Dylan's part to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to just like undermine the the kind of like uh, the sense of completion that you're going to get from seeing this character rewarded by moving the focus away from 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 the plot and onto the kind of like the craft of cinema here. My it's question is: In that interlude, did he take Viagra? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yes. yeah. Okay, did he take the <laughs> pill, and I'm like, it is Viagra, yeah. right? Or is it like anti-anxiety medication or but, yeah. an aspirin? Similar. Uh, to you're recognized. Uh. <laughs> 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 I've never been in medical system. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like Caitlin, this I'm was sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> like Caitlin, I saw this fairly early in the festival, and that was the f- first moment I said, wow, out loud. Yeah. Um, and the second moment, Devika, I don't know if you want to talk about it, was in Potiphar. Go there. Um, <laughs> which I don't want to spoil because it is, again, so beautiful, but it's a, a match cut involving a poached pear on its side. And I think a few other critics have tweeted this out as they all want to do. Um, but Potiphar... Uh, you know, Devika, you went into this that much, despite not seeing all of it. Yeah, um, I will reserve my opinion because I left um, about 30 minutes in, so I really am not qualified to comment, yeah. except for the fact that I left 30 minutes in and make of that what you will, but, but I will I, let you three get into I it. I will qualify what I'm about to say by saying it's, you know, it, it's not the strongest film in competition, which is a word a lot of critics use to describe what they think is, you know, the most formally interesting or inventive or is going to, you know, move cinema forward. But this was definitely my favorite film in the festival and I was just enraptured. It's only two hours long. Uh, the first 20 minutes is probably just them cooking in a beautiful country house with a copper kitchenware making just dish after dish after dish. And it's so sumptuous, and the camera is just like stirring the pot, moving back and forth between uh, Julia Binoche cutting onions or Benoit Magamel, uh, you know, chucking in a few bay leaves. To quote something Justin Chang said to me, um, Juliet Binoche. Brioche, do you mean? Oh, hey. that's good too. Wow. That's good too. <laughs> um, but. Frederick, you were saying you also very much enjoyed this film. Yeah, I think we 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 could contextualize just a tiny bit um, for the listeners who are not here. Uh, so the pot of feu, which is in French, um, La Passion de Dodin Bouffon, is a um, uh, adaptation of a novel from 1924, actually based on a um, on a cook. It's a Swiss novel, but about a French cook who is a gourmet and. Um, uh, this film is by a Vietnamese um, French director from uh, who's originally from Vietnam. He's Tran An Hung, and he's well m- most well known for um, the scent of the green papaya and Cyclo, which for which he actually won the uh, Golden Lion mm. um, in 1995. Um, oh, 
that's a while ago. I forgot that film was is has was as old as me. Well, this was <laughs> this was sort of another one of those directors coming back to the yeah, festival yeah, and sort okay. of like their career changes all over. And uh, the Golden Line is Venice, just for for listeners, right? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this this movie is quite special because yes, it is um, uh, taking a lot of time. Um, for a kind of fetish. Um, I think this this fetish of the movie is looking at how to work in a kitchen and and the pleasure of cooking. Not so much, um, I would say, in um, the flesh of the um, of the ingredients, but more about the communal working together, tasting together, talking about food, um, thinking about how we can go on when um, when someone's missing in the kitchen. So there's um, there's really an aspect. To it that is um, core to cinema, which we know from, I don't know, I would say in gangster movies you have fetish about um, loyalty and being together in dark rooms and having mm -hmm. some plans and you have a kind of fetish in heist movies where you're about making the plan and executing it and here you have this fetish for um, cooking food. So yes, there's a food porn aspect to it. I would say that the film is not completely di uh, diving into that. Um, because it's more of a, um, yeah, uh, it has something of going in and out. There's something mm -hmm. very smooth about the film, also that makes it more difficult for cinephiles to accept as a great movie, I'd say. Um, looking at Devika. Um, mm. and, um, <laughs> 30 minutes, y'all. She didn't see it. She didn't watch the film. <laughs> no, but I, I understand how you could be motivated knowing that this is going to go for two hours and 15 minutes. And after tw uh, after half an hour, they're still just cooking this first meal. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was prepared for this because I had heard about it. Um, and I was actually hoping for them to be cooking the whole film. But there there is actually a love story um, which James alluded to that um, uh, brings us to um, this this great romantic gesture of um, Benoit Magimel, who um, used to be the partner of Juliette Binoche and they have a child together. Um, just for those of, uh, who are thinking that um, they're, they don't have quite the right chemistry, but the film brought them back together, not as oh, a Oh, you mean in real life? Sorry, yes. I thought in the, in the movie. That's right, they do. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, I in this forgot. In this movie, Juliette Binoche plays the cook working for um, uh, this very rich man who doesn't need to work and can uh, spend all his day just cooking, thinking about food and preparing it for um, his male friends. And she doesn't only cook for him, but she also leaves his uh, her door open at night sometimes, which is <laughs> maybe a bit um, weird um, thinking of... Um, uh, what this position of the um, woman working for a man and uh, working for him maybe also at night. But um, there's a big romantic gesture I just wanted to note before I let uh, Caitlin jump in, which is that at one moment he cooks for her um, and she's not doing so well. And he cooks a beautiful pear um, and she looks at this pair and then she offers her body in the face of a pair to him. And it made for a joke. And I think this film is actually quite self-aware and uh, quite witty in a way also. Yeah, I actually thought the most romantic moment in it was the point at, at quite near the end where... Um, uh, Binoche asks Majimel, uh, am I your wife or am I your cook? 
and uh, Majibina takes a, a you know deep breath in and kind of you know that awkward kind of like you know husband backed into a corner moment uh, <laughs> and he's he you know and then he, he takes her hand and he says you're my cook and she says thank you you know <laughs> I thought that was really, that was beautifully done it was a, it was a complete pleasure to watch it was a you know film about the pleasure of pleasure I thought there you know it kind of avoided the trap of like you know coming off a bit like a Borsan advert like you know through it's kind of like you say it's it's wit and it's charm but also the levity and the grace of those those two central performers uh who are just you know i could watch juliette binoche cook things in butter for hours as indeed i did um during, during this um i also just wanted to come back quickly if that's okay to what you're saying about this idea of fetish and kind of like um and like i guess like objects and work which also kind of for me the, this film kind of yeah, it was like such a kind of positive kind of statement of a thesis, you know, for, for kind of uh, the fetishization, I guess, of, uh, of cooking and of life and of, of, of life's kind of joys. And the, the, the film that kind of embodied the opposite of that for me was uh, The Vim Vendor's Perfect Days, which was Healing, so... Can I just say, every time I have a new guest on a podcast, I just am so... I'm looking to see what kind of segues they come up with, and you are just killing it. Oh, thanks. So. Wow. wow. Great segues. Thanks, yeah, plus. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put that on my report card. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, for me, that film felt fetishistic to the point of like p potentially kind of racist, actually. Um, and uh, about, you know, it's this film about this. Um, toilet cleaner uh in tokyo who kind of spends his day kind of like he's like this kind of diogenes of shibuya figure who just kind of like you know basically like all he wants from life is just like the satisfaction of a job well done and and you know the kind of shots that could be really like kind of technically interesting about kind of the way in which he does does his job are just like delivered with such kind of like like boring kind of realism and like you know like absolutely no, like very bad framing i thought often um yeah and then and, you know just the kind of I mean, to go back to, to kind of, I guess, what we're talking about with the loach, like the politics of his character, I also thought there was this kind of like, there's this reveal, I don't think I'm giving too much away, kind of about two thirds of the way through, where basically, you know, he's this man, this whole film is about kind of like cultivation, right? It's about kind of like, you know, like doing doing the right thing in the right way. And, and, you, and, yeah, to, and to just contextualize that. Yeah. He cleans toilets for a living, but he also reads literature and right. listens to great music. And um, I also found that a little bit, you know, I can't really name why, but I think you're so on the money, Caitlin, that the way his him doing his work, which is cleaning toilets, is shot, there is something very patronizing about it. Mm. Um, and I can't really name the formal gesture there, but there's something about the gaze of the film to me where it's very much like, look at him, look at him find the little spots under the yeah. commode and then rub them clean. And then, again, the film, it's it doesn't have much dialogue, so, uh, you know, it it's pretty restrained in a certain aspect, but... And then to see, and then these like, again, very fetishistic scenes of him reading literature and mm -hmm. listening to music. And then the twist that you're talking about where it's framed as a cert a choice. I mean, that his life is in part maybe a choice and he could have had a more comfortable life. Maybe. I think that's what the. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I think, yeah, for me, that was the, 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 the bit at which I just 
you know, if I hadn't been seated in the middle of the aisle and if Vin Vendors hadn't been in the audience, I probably would have walked out. <laughs> I was just too much of a coward to do it. Um, you know, there's this reveal basically where exactly as you say, you realize it's a choice that the reason that he, you know, he's he is how he is. There's, you know, a part at which kind of another character refers to him as being like, oh, but you're such an intellectual because you like read Patricia Highsmith and stuff. And it's like basically that you, you find out that, you know, he's from a, a bourgeois background, that this is like basically, you know, as I say, this kind of entirely cultivated kind of thing probably relating to some kind of trauma and it's yeah. you know it just I mean, felt very I patronizing say, i wouldn't make such a strong assumption that it is necessarily cultivated because i don't think the mm. film gives us enough information so even though i don't like this film yeah, i wouldn't yeah. necessarily say that like i don't think it's clear the circumstances that have led him to this life but there is some kind of valorization that just rubs me the wrong way totally. right there is some kind of like valorization of his life but also how he chooses to live it, which is with a lot of culture and simplicity that, of course, all work is good work and all work is decent and honorable work. But at the same time, um, I mean, I think we need some acknowledgement of the fact that he does not have a good job. And there is a little bit of that when his partner drops out and he's forced to take on extra shifts. But there's something reactionary about portraying him as this very self not not sufficient I don't know what the word is in a, like some kind of very contained and content figure everything's autonomous right it's like every meal is kind of like individually purchased he doesn't have the, the means to kind of cook properly at home he doesn't have a shower and, and yeah. this is kind of presented as if this is like I don't know like somehow kind of embodying some kind of like future or kind of you know some some like idealistic state of right. being right it's, yeah it just yeah. it was bleak yeah it's interesting because I, I guess in this case I did see a different movie. Um, I had the impression it was more of a parable about, um, uh, you know, an old director who's always been about this, um, uh, finding an all, old alter ego um, who um, wants to look at the simple beauty of life. And this might be um, uh, what you are into. I'm not so much, but... Um, if you let uh, let the flow of the film take you there, um, I think it's very coherent in this. In in um, this old man um, is really into doing a good job, um, and maybe we Germans have this in common with um, with the J Japanese that we're um, for us um, cleanliness is a <laughs> is a big thing. Um, <laughs> um, that's These a cultural are the cultural cliche. insights yeah. that I have you on the podcast for. <laughs> yeah, I thought. So, um, uh, you know, um, maybe I'm I'm too um, too too generous looking at um, Vim Vendors um, uh, now because I think it's it's still whatever you say his best fictional movie in 20 years, um, and because of that, so my my expectations were extremely low mm. um, going into into this movie, and I saw a very restrained movie, a movie that wanted to to be very simple and um, to have great musical and poetic moments that um, maybe don't reach me, but I, I could see how they can reach an old man who's um, had a bourgeois life and um, <laughs> wants to think he could have led a simple life and enjoyed it too. Dream on, Vin Vendors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, I mean, I guess there's 
I guess making a film for yourself is a totally valid thing. Um, I was going to say, well, if he made the film just for himself, but uh, yeah. I'm not going to argue against that. Yeah. I mean, just one disgusting fact is that he never actually cleans a particularly dirty toilet or anything like that. The, the, the labor of yeah. being a janitor and taking on the honorable position of like cleaning up after society. But James, um, Japanese toilets are never dirty. <laughs> But this is my point. If, if maybe the character's in New York subway toilet, that's a, that's a very different role. Absolutely, especially in the terms yeah. of the way that person is treated. And I think maybe, Caitlin, that's what you're alluding to in terms of like when choosing to set it in Japan and, and you know, all the... It's very anti-realistic, I think. There's something sanitized. Oh, <laughs> about the depiction of his life. But you haven't talked about the fact that the toilets are quite exciting. Oh, I mean, the best they, part. They have nothing sexual because, um, I, you know, in many yeah. movies, um, toilets are the place where people meet to um, engage in sexual activity. But here, they're really sanitized, but they are really diverse in their aesthetics and in their forms. And sometimes they're very modern in the way that All of a sudden, the 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 um, glass door just becomes um, uh, opaque. Mm -hmm. um, there's just there's the just some fun. The public toilets are amazing. Yeah, and there's <laughs> so I haven't been to Tokyo, so I'm actually looking forward to discovering the toilets of Tokyo now. Well, Wim Wenders, you have succeeded. <laughs> Frederick is looking forward to discovering the toilets of Tokyo. <laughs> Um, on that note, on that note, should we wrap it up? Any final thoughts, Caitlin, Frederick, James? Do we want to pick a palm? It is the end of the first. Ooh, I hate that kind of thing. But okay, <laughs> I will say that it's my guess, and this is my guess. Or do you want us to do our wishes or our guesses? Uh, either or, you can choose. Okay, my wish would be May December, <laughs> Todd Haynes, which I think is the best film here. Um, and I think Ali Chase's film is also wonderful and strong and complex. My guess would be either the Jonathan Glazer or Anatomy of a Fall, the Justine Trier, because I think they have like a combination of like a formal assurance, but also kind of a top, like a trendy sort of subject matter. I mean, I hate to say that about the Glazer film, like trendy, but it, or like very um, um, serious and something that is important. And both yeah. those films, I have my reservations toward, but they're also good films. So Yeah, if Ursuline called this festival like the best of European cinema, you have to look to something like Glazer's film as, as shining above the rest. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Frederick? Well, Glazer for sure is very showy, and I think this could fool um, another poser like um, Ruben Östlund. Um, so this mm. is probably the most likely awards contender but then also i have my reservations about this guest because usually juries never go with the ones you um with, uh, with the ones you think they will um for me personally it would also be may december um my second one would probably be justine trier's film and then we'll get to the pot au feu already so um but there there is um I'd say a very, very broad, um, very strong um, field of contenders this year. Um, and I'm, I'm very positive that the jury will manage to maneuver around those good films. 
<laughs> Caitlin? Well, Caitlin, your first can, your first, first can no, prediction. Yeah, what trap have you laid for you me could, here? You could go one for okay. one if you get this right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never come back. Um, yeah, I mean, Glazer seem, seems like the informed choice, definitely. Um, I'd love to see it go to Jalen. Um, I, I mean, I, I just thought that wow. film absolutely deserves that kind of applaud. I have been as a Jalen defender. Before I saw About Dry Grasses, I was the j- lone Jalen defender amongst yeah. the sea of Skeptic and Caitlin. This you have it. totally supplanted me. But seriously, yeah. Rima Eslund will not want to make the very select club of the people who got two pounds. Oh, yeah. He's not going to let someone else... <laughs> Skip ahead in the queue, as you know. <laughs> and yeah, yeah the, the pot au as well, I think would be a, a fantastic winner. And I think, a, yeah, a really interesting choice. But I, I doubt we'll see that happen. <laughs> yeah, I guess I was thinking about the Iceland and who has how many palms thing. Um, but I did want the, I did think the Jaylan could win. When I first saw it, I was like, that's going to win mm-hmm. um, for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but seeing the Briat today as well, I thought that was a really strong film that because of the context of her, you know, returning, if we can call it that, um, and it also being like a really strong film, and I know uh, certain important critics have liked it, so uh, I wouldn't be surprised as well if that if that was like a big triumph yeah. for her. Mm. Oh well, well, uh, listeners, those are those are our predictions. Um, there will be one more podcast, sort of a, a broader discussion coming to you after this one, but um, this is the last one. From the cross set, we've wrapped up the lineup. Uh, I've had some rosé. I think we're going to go and have some more. And, well, thank you to the listeners for staying with us on this journey. And thank you so much to Frederick, to Caitlin, and to my co-pilot, James, for doing this. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thanks. (laughs) Bye. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.